You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. podcast rather than critique or score films out of five or ten or tell you what we love or what we hate i sit down with the filmmaker and get them to give us an insight into the process of making their movie what they discovered what they learned all those kind of things or i get to sit down with a horror film fan and get them to tell me five great british horror films that they think we should all take interest in either way this podcast is provided totally free without any outside advertising so, if you enjoy it, please make sure to subscribe in iTunes, and if you've got that bit more time, write me a review too. It all helps. Thank you. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast, and appearing for his hat-trick performance, I think, is uh, Johnny Owen. Hello, Johnny. How are you doing, Stuart? You're, I was just going to say, do I get a hat-trick ball, like they used to give on... on um... On soccer AM was now you'd get a football, and that means I'm talking about well, I'm only talking about I've talked about two football films. I'm wondering if I get a football of any kind, a cheap plastic one you can get sort of used to get in the seaside that would blow in the wind will do any kind of ball really. I'll try and get you an emoji of a football. Is that all right? <laughs> yeah, a virtual football. That's all right for me, mate. Very nice. <laughs> well, look, I mean, previously we spoke to you about your writing feature film debut where you acted in Svengali. And mm-hmm. then we spoke about your Nottingham Forest documentary, I believe, in Miracles. Mm-hmm. And now we're here to talk about your um, your documentary feature film, Don't Take Me Home. Do you do you want to tell people a brief synopsis to what Don't Take Me Home is all about? Yes, yeah, certainly. It's the um, it's another feature doc, another mm-hmm. football feature doc, uh, mm-hmm. and it's the story of um, of the Wales European campaign at the 2016 European Championships, mm-hmm. um, where they sort of uh, exceeded all expectations by getting through to the semi-finals, smallest country in the world to do that at a major tournament. Um, and I was there most of the time, and, and what was great was I was there as a fan. I wasn't there to to make a film, um, so I, I sort of, and I, I'm quite glad of that now. But uh, when I got back to the UK, uh, after being in France for almost five weeks, uh, I was contacted by the Welsh FA 
um, and they said that they were thinking of uh, of doing some kind of commemorative film, mm. uh, you know, specifically really for Welsh Wales football fans. Yeah. And would I would I be interested? Now remember, I'd been I'd gone to France for three days and ended up staying there for almost five weeks. Mm-hmm. And um, I had a very understanding uh, partner, Vicky. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I had to fly to Lanzarote late because I missed the first week of that holiday with her and her family. Mm. And then suddenly they were saying to me, can you get back and start making this film? <laughs> I said, um, well, I said, I've just got to see this one holiday through with the missus. And then as soon as I'm back, I'll, uh, I'll, be... <laughs> I'll be delighted to start. You know what I mean? So, um, yeah, that was, that was the kind of background story. But you yeah, listen, I'd have, I'd have swam back from the Canary Islands if, if I needed to, to make that film, because obviously being... A Welshman, a proud Welshman, and a huge fan of the Welsh national football team. I have since I've been a, a, a wee small boy. Uh, it was a film I was desperate to make. Now, how, now at the moment, obviously, this is available now. So, how can people see the film? Well, it's on DVD. Mm-hmm. Um, it's available from Amazon and all good outlets. HMV, you've got to name them all, haven't you? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And all sort of all the supermarkets, blah de blah. Um, and it's also on BT Sport at the moment. Uh, it, I think it gets shown once every two or three months, so it's on television. If you didn't yeah. want to spend that uh, that ten pound on the DVD, <laughs> um, and uh, I think it's available to download as well. So it's in a, quite a few places, and, and I believe that it'll be on on terrestrial television at some point in the next uh, year to eighteen months. So it's uh, yeah, it's uh, it's pretty easy to get hold of. So yeah, it's out there. So for the non-football fan. I guess the, 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 the main re- one of the main reasons why this was such a special story was it was 58 years since Wales had even been in an in a international tournament. That's right. I mean, it was, um, we were kind of that plucky country that almost made it. There were so many occasions in the past uh, where, you know, like a, a crossbar had denied us in 1993. Uh, Russia had stopped us in 2003 with, with somebody that was done for for doping in their team. So there was a, there was all this kind of, it was the, Joe Jordan's famous handball at Anfield in 78. Yeah. So there was all, not just, not just the fact that we hadn't qualified. There were all these really tragic stories around it. So there was a sort of feeling that we were always the sort of bridesmaid, never the bride um, of all the home countries. We were the ones that were never in what you would call the modern uh, major championships. And football's such a huge sport now. It's such, it's not just a huge sport. It's a huge part of, of life. You know, I, you know, I, 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 go along with people that say it's probably re- replaced music in popular culture uh, in the sense that the, the people who are at the top end of football, the players, have become almost like the rock stars of previously. Like, you know, you don't get your Mick Jaggers and your John Lydons anymore. It does tend to be your Ronaldos and Messis and those kind of boys. They have that profile that rock stars used to have sort of in the late part of the 20th century and, and film stars used to have in the middle of the, of the 20th century. So football's such a huge thing. And, and, and a country like Wales, which, you know, is only... 3.5 million and always trying to you know, attract investment and, and all those kind of things that we all talk about in the modern world. The profile it gets uh, you know, is incalculable, really. And, and I think they were saying after this tournament, because obviously we've become almost a story of the tournament, that's in Iceland, yeah. uh, it was worth almost a billion pounds in PR for, the, for Wales as a country. You know, and having a really famous player like Gareth Bale really helps as well. So it was an incredible moment not just in, in in welsh football history but in welsh history that we were suddenly being talked about mm. on a global scale on a global scale it's interesting what you say about football because in, in in the run-up to a recent whistleblowers for listeners i also do a football podcast we were talking about how how um there are people now who follow footballers not teams which i'm finding very bizarre as a, as a fashion in football for how people watch the game 
Because obviously, you've got now what used to be the majority, which was the people in the stadium, because of the way the global TV thing works, the people in the grounds are now in the minority in terms of who supports what club. By, yeah, by I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I think the way you can really see it to define this is, is the whole Ronaldo and Messi thing. And my, my, my nephew, my Vicky's nephew, Kai, who's a lovely kid, he's a Ronaldo fan. So he's got all the Ronaldo sort of Real Madrid tops and all the rest of it. And he he hates Messi, which is really funny because obviously you go, <laughs> well, as an adult, you go, they're both great footballers. And he kind of goes, no, Messi's rubbish. <laughs> Ronaldo's the best. You know. <laughs> as you do when you're eight or nine years of age. And I think you're absolutely right. It's a, it's a very new thing that uh, and I think the balloon door has become such a, a feature of football that, that, and it wasn't when we were younger I don't care what anybody no. says nobody really was bothered about that and uh, you know but now it's become a huge thing and obviously Ronaldo and Messi both talk about their desire to win it desperately and I think that's leaked down and sort of kids you know really associate with individual players these superstars like I said who've become like the modern mm. rock stars and film stars um, and that's just a new phenomenon of the game I think you're absolutely right what you're saying is that you know kids will now support a player now whether they'll jump clubs with that player I don't know possibly well you've seen, but, it, you seen know, it with Neymar with that move from Barcelona to PSG yeah that's a good point yeah you know that, yeah. Was, a, that was very much a, a big PR move wasn't it that wasn't really yeah. Neymar's pinnacle of his career to play for Paris Saint-Germain no it was it was you know it was all those things that we all know that happens in in modern football it's a combination of money it's a combination of states owning football clubs, not even oligarchs anymore, but actual physical countries. countries. Yeah, so you've got all that that's kind of going on. And, and, and what's really interesting for me is that how difficult it is to compete with that. Now, Pep Guardiola is a, is a fantastic football coach and a very talented man. But you will say, and this is just fact, he's been at Barcelona Bayern Munich, and he's out at Manchester City with an unlimited budget. You know, mm. like a bit like this is able the CIA in the 60s had an unlimited budget. Yeah. He has an unlimited budget. Now, if we talk about, just for argument's sake, Brian Clough, you know, or Bob Paisley. Brian Clough won a European Cup with a, a left-back who'd been released by Newcastle, being too old. A right-back from Man City, Colin Barrett, who was playing in the reserves. A crock from Coventry, Larry Lloyd, who potentially had a bad back. Kenny Burns, who was playing up front. John Robertson, who was on the transfer list to Partick Thistle. And he won the European Cup with those kind of players. Now, to me, the evidence is overwhelming. Somebody like Brian Clough at that point, or Bob Paisley, who won the two European Cups before, were managers in a different world because they had to find players in different scenarios. Whereas if you've got an unlimited budget, listen, if I was managing Manchester City, do you know how, how I would coach Man City? I would say to them, I'll see you quarter to three on a Saturday, boys. Just bring your boots. That's what I'd say to Man City, because <laughs> how do you coach those kind of players? You literally can buy the best players in the world, can't you? And just put them in a team and say, you know what? Just do your thing and we'll set up and we'll play a certain way. But my, my point is that the older football managers, and I'm not one of those blokes who goes, oh, I hate modern football and all that. All I'm saying is they did have to operate in a different world where they didn't have the financial muscle and couldn't buy whoever they liked. Now, now international football, by by contrast, can't be governed by the depth of your pockets. Obviously, the size of your country has a huge imperative on whether you're a successful football nation or not. But it's not it's not the only imperative because, obviously, you can have a crop of players... Um, and I guess America's a good example. They've never become a world leader in football, no matter how serious they take it, despite having 350 million people. Whereas what we're going to talk about now, Wales, 3.5 million population, but with maybe a talisman and a kind of B talisman in Aaron Ramsey, yeah. put, to, put together 
an 11 that had that touch of class in its 11 that beat the odds, didn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think what you've got as well is is a situation where a team was is able to develop. So do you remember when England had massive problems with um, Lampard, Gerrard and Scholes? Do you remember that? Of course I do, yeah. So it was very difficult to, get to, to fit three world-class players, in my opinion, genuinely world-class players, all fighting for one, maybe two positions, and some players being played out of position, you know. So it becomes a problem sometimes when you have too, too many, you know, the English golden generation. Whereas with Wales, you have a situation where obviously Gareth Bale is our, is our best player. Uh, Aaron Ramsey is, is, is world-class on his day. And he played to, a, to, the, to the limit of his ability during that championship, no doubt. But then you've got a situation where somebody like, um, for argument's sake, Sam Vokes plays up front. He plays as a target man. He's very happy to, to be hold the ball up, get himself kicked, to try and turn when he can, so to bring Bale and, and Aaron into the game. And maybe some players with a, with a bigger ego, or with a bigger profile, I should say, rather than ego, I'm not on the go, but wouldn't be willing to do that kind of work that those kind of players are willing to do around Gareth Bale and around Aaron Ramsey. And I think that was a, a massive advantage for us in Wales. People often go, I didn't realise that, but our back three uh, that had the best stats in the tournament up to the semi-final were Ashley Williams, who was captain of Swansea at the time, Ben Davis, who wasn't getting picked for Spurs, and James Chester, who wasn't getting picked for West Brom. So we had two of the three weren't even playing regular football, and yet their stats were the best in the tournament. So that it, you're right, something else happens there where... Certain talismen are there and other players feed into that. And then it becomes, in a strange way, a better team because it isn't a team full of 11 super talented footballers who all want to do their own thing. A team is uh, a group of players who allow one or two or maybe three world-class players to play a certain way. And I think Wales hit on that formula perfectly in that tournament. It's very interesting to me, and, and I give a lot of credit to Chris Coleman for this, in the World Cup qualifiers recently gone, where we didn't qualify in the end, mm. we nearly did, only 22% of the time did we have Gareth Bale, Aaron Ramsey and Joe Allen on the pitch, now our three most creative players. And unfortunately, what, what the downside of that for us is, is that if a one or two of those players are injured, it's very difficult to replace them then. And that's where we can begin to struggle as a smaller country. So if they're fit... It works perfectly. Unfortunately, you lose one or you lose the other, and then we, it, there's, a, there's a, quite a drop in the quality of the side, and, and that's what affected us, these qualifiers, in my opinion. Now, the story is obviously of the Euros in 2016, but you start your documentary with the appointment of Chris Coleman, which follows the very tragic news about Gary Speed. Yeah. So what, what, was, your, what was your reasoning... If, if it was meant, if, if if at the start of it, it's the Welsh FA going, can we make something to commemorate this 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 Euro story? Why did you feel it was important to to put that at the front end? Um, I I think that the what happened with Gary was so closely tied in to certainly the modern history of Wales. You know, I mean, Gary took took over and he was it was very encouraging under him at the beginning. He won a lot of games and he was bringing through a lot of young players, um, as Toshak had done just before, but Gary really upped the ante and you know, made Aaron captain, I think, at only about 19 or 20 years of age. Um, and it was, everybody was very optimistic. And then the, what happened with Gary happened, you know, those really tragic events. And what I tried to get across in the film was, and, and I spoke to Welsh FA about how I do this, and we contacted his family to let them know. We just wanted to let everybody know how much that affected, not just the team, but the country, 
Mm. And also, also Chris himself, who was one of Gary's, if not Gary's best friend. Yeah. There's a great line in the, in the film where he says, you know, if I ever was in trouble or I needed advice, it was him I'd speak to. And he wasn't there anymore. You know, so and I was quite shocked as a Welsh football fan of how quick I thought myself it was six months in between Gary going and, and, and Chris coming in and all that sort of period where we had to sort of it was a few weeks. It was I think it was four or five weeks or something, you know, mm. and I didn't realize it was that quick that he was sitting. And he says again, another line from the film, he says, I didn't like sitting in his chair because I imagined him being in there just a few weeks before. And he said, I thought myself, good, good Lord, I didn't realize how quick all that had to be sort of absorbed uh, and the impact that it had. And we had a dreadful qualifying campaign after that. We were hammered everywhere, really. I think we lost 6-1 out in Serbia. And, you know, it was, and, and he had says himself, I didn't realise the effect that it would have on the team and the country and, and the fans. It just felt such a, a miserable time, really. Do you know, and I, and I genuinely can say this now, and with hindsight, that I didn't think we'd ever qualify for a major tournament. I thought, well, that's it, really. We're kind of cursed in a way. Mm. And I thought to myself, you know, that that... We've just got to recompense ourselves to the fact that Wales is never going to compete in a major tournament. That's how I felt at that time, and I think pretty much everybody felt that same way. Yeah, I was going to say, I must, when 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 Republic of Ireland were uh, were up in arms about the Thierry Henry handball, yeah, you, you must be thinking, let me just show you the list of our unfortunate <laughs> yeah. of our unfortunate moments where we didn't quite qualify. Yeah. I did, and I, I was on Soccer AM talking about that, and I, I, I weirdly, loads of people have mentioned this to me since, and I was, I was, it was the, I was on the Saturday after that happened, and I went, look, same thing happened with Wales, with Joe Jordan, yeah. and I said, what weirdly happened, I said, Scotland went to Argentina in 1978, and had the most miserable tournament, and I said, you know, the universe and karma, whatever, has a funny way of working, so let's just see what happens, and do you remember, France went to that tournament, yeah. and I also had a complete nightmare, didn't they, do you know what I mean, so yeah. there's a lesson here, there's a lesson here, children, you know what I mean, <laughs> it doesn't work, it doesn't work to cheat, you know, so, karma, karma you know, is a calm, bitch, karma's a bitch, absolutely, Stu, so I was a bit like, you know, and uh, I just I just thought myself, it, I could give them a list Two pages long of, of the injustice we've offered. You know, the, the Russian one was was a huge was a huge blow for us. You know, we mm. lost one 0 to Russia over two legs, and they had a player. Just the one player they tested was found to be a ridiculous amounts in, in his urine, and he was obviously he was banned and all that kind of stuff. But there was a real feeling in Wales at the time of come on, do you know what I mean? Help us out, yeah. Is are there any more? And obviously all the stuff came up about the athletes and all that kind of stuff. And we were all just a bit like, is it ever ending this 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 mm. this, this series of bad luck that we seem to get but uh it came it, it came everything seemed to come right in france i think we had all our um all our luck back off the universe and karma back in one in one beautiful summer really now when you when you did i believe in miracles there was a huge amount of time between when that story happened and when you got to tell the world this fantastic story of unlikely of unlikely league and european winners yeah whereas you and obviously there was lots of established narratives that you were that you were piggybacking. You were introducing some new thoughts and ideas that maybe people weren't aware of. But ostensibly, the general story that this team from nowhere came to somewhere was was known. Whereas you're coming fresh off of Euros, where everyone's going, "How the hell did Wales do that?" And then you're tasked with plotting a narrative that is going to be you. You're going to be telling the story almost for the first time. While it's still fresh in people's minds, so you're gonna, you've got this job of framing what really happened. So, what to you were the biggest storytelling challenges of that of that Euros as as trying to make it a documentary? Well, I think the Welsh FA were, were key 
in that um, something happened there. Welsh FA and the fans, obviously, was, was and, and the team. It was three parts for me. Mm. The first thing was the Welsh FA because it was no coincidence that Wales had sort of got to that point to me once you started really sort of scratching underneath the surface and getting to the nub of the story. And what would be a very antiquated uh, organisation, you know, up mm. until only about 10 years ago, had, had been replaced by some dynamic people in, in a much, much smaller sort of group, uh, a CEO, an international match secretary, Mark Evans, was in the film. There was another, you know, there was a few people there who were core of why Wales suddenly, you know, had clicked and, and looked a very more modern organisation, the way they dealt with things off the pitch. Mm. Um, and I wanted to get that story across, the way that they have this, this uh, system they put in place about 10 years ago for kids playing football in Wales, you know, trying to get them playing a certain style of football, passing football, uh, getting lots of coaches out there and uh, trying to create pitches. So there was this thing that had gone on for about 10 years and also this pathway they talked about, which was we, we were scouting for players who had Welsh heritage, there's no doubt about that. It was Three, four key players in the team were all born in England of Welsh parents and grandparents. Um, and there was also this thing where they brought them through from a young age. So people like Gareth and Aaron were playing with Chris Gunter at, at 12 and 13. So they almost knew one another telepathically, really. Mm. So there was this system had been put in place. And I wanted to talk about that in the film, you know, the, the way that the Welsh FA had sort of said, you know, we're going to really try and structure something so that the, the you know, a small country can But Iceland are doing it amazingly well now, as we all know. They've built, I think they've got a pitch for every 14 people or something in Iceland. Gee, you know, it's, it's just, it's ridiculous out there. And they just encourage kids and people to play football. And ultimately what happens is when people are encouraged to play and you get more numbers, then, you know, people, you get more chance of picking that players who are very good. We've been lucky in the sense that Gareth Bale has popped up, who's one of the best players on the planet. You know, Aaron, you know, we've got a very good, you know, sort of uh, spine of a team, you know, players that uh, have known each other, like I said. Then you've got the fans. So this weird thing happened with Welsh football fan culture where we never qualified for a major tournament. And I think, in a weird way, a sort of like, you know, like some, something in a Petri dish, something developed outside other football. So the Welsh football fans arrived in France with this fully formed culture and everyone was this, you know. They, they, they don't wear that... <laughs> They don't wear daft wigs and get drunk like some countries' fans do, which is fair enough, they think. They are, they're not singing, you know, 10, 10 German bombers stripped to the off as an Irish bar, wanted to fight everybody like other fans of other clubs are, of other <laughs> countries are. They're in the middle somewhere with these bucket hats and trainers and, and, and so they all look like the super furry animals, I felt, you know, and that's why I chose a lot of their music. So this weird kind of indie sort of look, you know, culture that sort of developed, you know, sort of, I think Ellis James is a great example of that, the comedian, the way he looks who were watching Wales and not expecting huge success. And we're watching Wales and having great times going to places like Cyprus and you know, all over Europe and, and sort of become quite a tight-knit. And they knew the team really well. So I, I say this to people. When I went to France, I was staying in a hotel for the Bordeaux game and there were people just wandering around the hotel and it was a team hotel and just having photographs taken with Gareth Bale and Aaron Ramsey. It was not a problem. And they had fan, fan assemblies, they called them, uh, where you know they got post points set up. These are voluntary things where they help you, you know, lads who've lost passports or get a bit too drunk, all that kind of thing. So they got this network of volunteers that's that's encouraged, and I think even funded a little bit by the Welsh FA. And the Welsh FA have you know tried to sort of leave that culture. They got their own fashion label called Spirit of Fifty Eight, which is really popular, which produces all these bucket hats. So there's a very specific Welsh football culture, very mm. specific. That is unlike England and unlike other countries. And what happened in France was the, a light was shone on that and everybody went, well, they've taken 30,000 to Bordeaux 
they're well behaved and good natured. They be, you know, they, they they sing certain songs. Obviously, the one was "Don't Take Me Home," which I <coughs> picked up on. But you had all these things that were sort of thing. I saw that you had a team, uh, an organisation, and and a set of fans, uh, uh, like a triumvirate of of things that happened in France that were very specifically Welsh. Mm. And that was what I tried to tell the story of in the film. And and what are the things that anybody who's who follows football and and you mentioned Gareth Bale. Uh, who is one of the greatest players on the planet right now, and certainly was at his peak when when he was playing in that tournament. Um, and and the way you know the way the way a media can 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 elevate a human being to something you know close to demagoguery just for being good at something. Your documentary, on the other hand, shows us Gareth Bale, the lad who's one of the team. He's by no nothing about what we see of him in the film apart from his exploits on the field. Would would suggest he was a superstar. I think you've captured a very human side of Gareth that I think does him does him no harm whatsoever. I think for for uh, for his for his um, for him, I suppose. I, I, I had them for a few days. This is mm. part of the deal to interview them all, and they were all superb. Mm. Um, and, I, and what I was struck was was he was just one of many that sort of came in that day. They've all been out playing golf and training. Did his interview, and you know, I think an, an hour each with each of them. And, and off he went. It, it was. It wasn't as if everybody was suddenly going. Oh, we're going to wait for Carlos. We're going to get Carlos. He was literally just one. You know, I think he was might have been after sort of Andy King and and before Sam Vokes, You know, uh, or, or Robson Carlos. He, he just came as a lot in time. Um, and the, the impression I always got from him, just you know, I had a bit of a chat to them all just before, just to you know, to what they call loosen them up, relax them, just to say what I'm doing and all the rest of it, just to speak very kindly. They all wanted to talk about Gary Speed, for argument's sake, hmm. and they were all very open with me. But with Gareth, what I got from him, and, what, and pretty much what I got from him was just how much he likes playing for Wales, how much he likes spending time with the fellow players, who likes coming to Cardiff, you know, likes travelling with them. You know, they do get on very well. And listen, you know, Chris even says in the film, every team can say, oh, we've got a few pints, we have a good time. But he said, what it is with us that made us different was the adversity, and I thought that was really interesting. They weren't. It wasn't. This wasn't a team born out of you know being fantastic, like say a, a young team that had won the youth European Youth Cup and the Euro, World Youth Cup. What what had bonded these boys was the dreadful things that had happened in the past, Gary's passing, and also you know the near failures. Yeah. And they, so what they were able to say to me was when they lost to England in in injury time in a, in a huge game in a, in a you know a derby really, mm. they were able to move on to. That quite from that quite quickly, quite quickly, because they're able to rationalise it by going, look, we've been so much worse than this, and that's what I found to be really striking for me was all of them spoke. I think in life we know and this is in all life. As you get older, you kind of realise what what where you really find out about somebody is in in the, in the bad times, times of adversity. Mm. You know, it's when things are going well, everything's great. It's 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 always fine, and that's okay. I get it. That's, but when your chips are down and somebody's by your shoulder. When you come out to that, you think, well, I'll have him or I'll have her. You know, I love them for that. Do you know what I mean? For being, sticking by me when when, when the times are bad. And I, and I did think that that was the, the huge connection between us whole team and that manager was that they felt that they'd they'd been through the tough times together. So therefore, you know, they, they, could, they could trust each other. That's the word. They could really trust one another. Where did you get some of your footage from? Because obviously not all of it you would have filmed, I suppose. So... I didn't film any of it, which is great. I was really chuffed with this. I went to France as a fan, and I wasn't even thinking of a film. And I'm glad I did this, because if I'd gone there to film, I wouldn't have enjoyed it as much, because I'd have been thinking about coverage and all that kind of nonsense you mm. think of when you're making films. But when I got back and they offered me 
do the film. They said, look, you can interview the players, and we've got hours of footage that we filmed ourselves with our little film unit, and done really well. Um, and so they said, you can have all that. So I just went, I just spent like two weeks watching hours and hours of footage and pulling out interesting stuff and stuff from a few years back and all that kind of thing, which I thought would be interesting and relevant to the story. But then my my idea was, I seen, we live in this era of, of people just filming everything on their phones. You know, this this is the world now, even though the, they don't fucking turn it the right way around, which drives me crackers. But mm. anyways, <laughs> so I, but I just thought to myself, I'm going to ask some fans, really, because it's a fan story as well, just to send me stuff in. So they sent me stuff in, and obviously the quality is so good now in, in the sense of when you blow it up. Uh, I wanted to use a lot of fan shots, so I did. And I think I've got about 12, 13 minutes of fan phone shot in the film. And some, I think one of the people at the Board of Control and one of the people in the British film industry said to me, you've got the most ordinary footage they've seen in a film. So I was quite pleased about that. And I, and I think it held up really well because I was just able to intercut you know, really flash UEFA footage, standard footage of the match. And then it intercut it with, you know, Dave from Cardiff on his fucking phone filming a shot of the side of the pitch. And it worked really well because I thought, well, that's what Dave is seeing. You know, we're all, the world is watching this, but actually that's what he's seeing, him and his phone. And I thought myself, it'd be quite interesting to mix those two up. So I tried to do that as much as I could as well and cut back to the fan parks in Wales and all those kind of things so that we could get a feel of, because I was in France the whole time. Mm. I wasn't. I wasn't in Wales, but I think I wanted to say as well that everybody who stayed in Wales were all getting swept up in it as well, and I wanted to try and tell that story. You know, my mates are going, "Ah, oh, it was the fan parks were." I mean, there were no fan parks at parks at the start. You know, there was there was nothing set up because Wales was establishment-wise is seen as a rugby country. Yeah. It's not. It's as much football as it is rugby. But and the establishment go, oh, well, we should set a fan park up for rugby fans because that's what we do in Wales. We we watch Wales at rugby four or five times a year and we put a fan park up and it'll be full of 10,000 people. But they didn't do that for the football because they were like, well, we don't really know what to do. This football is this weird thing that's developed itself and the fans look look a bit different and they're not, you know, they haven't got daffodils in their head, they've got bucket hats, you know. It's all that kind of stuff. Adidas trainers rather than Timberland <laughs> shoes. So it's a different culture. And this lad protested, or he started a, started a he did he started a petition and went, why haven't we got fan parks? And he picked up a lot of media in Wales. So mm. Cardiff Council caved in and went, look, we'll set one up like we used to do for the rugby. We'll set a fan park up on Cooper's Field, and it was full. It was full. So they thought, oh, something's happening here. So then all the towns and, and, and places across Wales started setting them. The major towns started selling, setting up fan parks, and they were all full as well. So by the end. For the last game of the semi-final in, in Lyon against Portugal, they opened the Millennium Stadium. The Millennium Stadium was full of people watching a screen. That's why I had that shot. Which yeah, is, yeah, you know, yeah. that's, that's where the <clears throat> momentum had got to. It was ridiculous. So it's kind of like, it was this natural thing. Listen, Stu, you, you, we all know this. There's nothing worse than forced or planned fun, is there? You know, no. like somebody says, do you want to, you know, we're going to do this on this stag weekend. You just think, oh, just stay in the pub and see what happens. You know, we don't need to go and ride go-karts. You know, nothing mm. worse than planned fun. And I think what happened with Wales was it was a unique moment was because nothing was planned and it was all sort of organic and you know people were just taking weeks off work and getting out of France and these, these parks popped up and this thing. It almost was better really because it was just if you maybe if we'd thought oh you know if we get out in the group and all that because nobody thought we'd get out of the group. I don't care what anybody says. I can remember my mate saying to me he was the most optimistic Welsh fan ever. He, he, he whispered to me he went I just want to score a goal. I just want one goal. That's what he said to me. And I was like, oh, it'd be great to score. When we scored, he was like, oh, we scored. That was great. And then about 20 minutes before the end, he says to me, I'd love to win a game. And I was like, yeah, me. And then <laughs> and by the end, he was going, I'd love to win the group. 
you know, I'd love to get through the second. So it was just one of those things where it seemed like little steps on the way created this thing, you know, and, and that's what happened, I think, back in Wales as well. It, it just got this own momentum where by the time it got to the Belgium game, everybody kind of felt, well, look, we're in the quarterfinals now. We've done incredibly well to get there. This is, these are the, the tournament favourites. You know, these, got, these, these have got Lukaku, De Bruyne, you know, Hazard. This is the best team people are saying in the world at the moment. They call them mm. a billion-dollar team in Belgium because they're worth a billion pound, apparently, all of them together. So let's just see what happens. We can't possibly win, win this with Neil Davis and Chris Gunter from Reading and Aston Villa playing on the, on the wings. And, then, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and, and James Chester not getting picked for West Brom. Yeah. You know, all those things we were sort of saying, we've, we've had a good ride and let's see where we get to. And by the time we got to Belgium, I think everybody was thinking, you know what, it's amazing what we've done to get here. But maybe now this is the moment where, you know, and, you know we could have lost four or five nil that game or, you know, or six one or something like that. You know what I mean? And, Incredibly, we 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 turned around and we and we beat Belgium three one. You know, and suddenly we were in the semi final. It was amazing. No, no, it was it was it was that that thi- it's that beautiful thing that football's a habit of doing. I guess I guess Republic of Ireland in ninety four in USA, um, yeah, Greece in what was that two thousand four, um, yeah. you know where 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 somebody from nowhere does does the fantastic thing, and 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 football fans to to a man and woman. Don't mind it. It's 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 one of them brilliant things, isn't it? Because obviously only one, only one can win it, and once you're out, you're out. So having a surprise yeah, I mean, package I, is always interesting. I think you're absolutely right, and I think the, the commercial side of it was a real eye opener for UEFA and for FIFA because they've changed it as well. Because I get the fact they want Germany and France to get through the big countries for sponsorship and TV, you know, sort of uh, viewing figures across the world because. Something like the European Championships and the World Cup, even the European are hugely watched across the planet, Australia, South America, Africa. You know, it gets massive human figures. So they want the big teams to, to get through with, with the really high-profile players because they think, well, you know, this is where, you know, we, we are in the real money. But what happened was, uh, I always remember the figures, Wales were getting as high a viewing figures. And for Belgium, I think they, they peaked. They had the highest viewing figure, and we did against Portugal. Um, and Iceland had, had been a story as well. And I think what happened was even they realised, do you know what? People love an underdog, don't they? they? Like you said, they love the fact that in football, it is one of those sports, a bit like boxing with a puncher's chance, where sometimes, you know, somebody can win. It can't happen in rugby. New Zealand will never lose to Japan. They can't because know, of the way al- the game and also, is. And also, Cardiff are unlikely to beat Juventus anytime soon, are they? But, exactly. But Wales exactly. can be Italy, which is a really Wales can, weird, weird, weird. weird. And see, this is this. Is, so this is the thing with football. You can sneak a goal in football, and you can hold out for for eighty nine minutes. You know, it's just the way football is. It's just it's just one of those games, and it happens regularly enough for for it to remind everybody this is what makes football as, the biggest as, as an sport in the planet. As an yeah. Englishman, fan culture is an interesting thing to look at because I've grown I've grown up in a, in 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 a time where. Northern Ireland, Republic of Ireland, Scotland, at various tournaments, go go away and have a laugh. Whereas mm. England fans go away and they're on manoeuvres. Yeah. Um, which, you know, I know a lot of football fans that are not like that, but for, for reasons, the way the story goes, maybe over time they've attracted it. And obviously Wales became another one of those stories of fans that did their nation proud so to speak yeah i, th- I think like i said a, a very specific english football culture developed 
Um, I'm not criticising it because you know it's it was it was what it was at that time. You know, it's certainly in the, in the 70s and 80s. Um, and then in '96, for argument's sake, in the European Championships, something really, really positive and good came out of it, didn't they? The mm. idea they re- they reclaimed the St George's Cross, you know, all that kind of stuff. And you know, it it, it was very, it was a very, seen as a very positive thing for English football. Unfortunately, there seems to be an idea about for younger lads coming through the English away setup to go when we go over with England, we have to dress a certain way, sing certain songs, and behave a certain way, almost like something they've seen from. 20, 30 years ago, which is a shame. Mm. And there, there are older English lads that I know now who used to go away with England that don't go anymore. They just can't be doing with it because they want to go away and enjoy the city and have a good time. But you can't because ultimately being England, and this is a shame for them, you attract like you know the local mobs turn up and all that. And I, you know, and I think in you in, in, in the European Championships, the whole thing with Russia was just very ugly in the sense that Russia. Were turning up to, to try and fight in England. Oh but, yeah, no, uh, it was definitely that. They're definitely that way round. But it was just that you know, England ugly, carries I, carries this burden now, doesn't it? Exactly. That it is... Yeah, absolutely. That's what I'm saying. They were turning up to fight in England of of twenty, thirty years ago, in a sense. You mm. know, the England that used to go away in the mid eighties, and a lot of them are not now. A lot mm. of them are different, and but there is still some there that do try to carry this idea that you know we're an invading army, and you know we have to that that absolutely still exists. You know, you're right. And there's another side that are desperately trying to break away from that. And I think it's still kind of caught between those two schools, really, in watching England. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many boys I know who say to me that they're not interested in the English national team anymore. It's quite sad, really. They said they used to love them. You know, they certainly loved the team that went to Italy in 1990, the Gascoigne teams and all that. But and now they kind of say to me, I'm not really bothered anymore, which is it's a shame for them. And I think probably the opposite has happened in Wales, where everybody kind of loves the national team. They love the, the, the lads that play for Wales. They love what they represent. They like what the fans do. So almost the opposite thing has happened there, where people are really proud of, of, like you said, the way the fans behaved and the way the team played. Just between me and you, how prickly has been the response from the rugby institutions to this popularity of football in Wales? Oh, they, they, I think they've been all right. I mean, I think <laughs> the thing is, it's, it's, I know it's quite a funny one, because there is a kind of rivalry that, that exists because of the position that rugby holds in Welsh history. As I've got older, I've thought to myself, I don't, I, if Wales do well in rugby, of course I want them to do well and all the rest of it. I'm less combative as I was in my 20s where I used to feel really knocked that the Welsh football team didn't get the, the, columns, <laughs> the column spaces that rugby once did. But as I've got older, I think you just get, you, you mellow more really. Do you know what I mean? And I, I, yeah. I, I tell you this, I will, will, a lot of the Welsh rugby team and ex-players were brilliant around the time of the Euros in supporting the Welsh football team and, and mm. getting behind them and travelling out there as well. So I thought to myself then, oh God, you know, maybe I've been a bit too hard on them sometimes in the past. Do you know what I mean? But mm. I, to my, to, still every so often something will knock me. Still, like they won't allow Welsh fans in in Wales tops or certain pubs in Cardiff uh, because they're football tops um, on National Day. Yet they'll still allow people in Welsh rugby tops. On international day, oh, when sometimes, yeah, when sometimes the Welsh rugby fans have been less well behaved than the football fans, and I think that's still disappointment. There's still a bit of a hangover from that. Was idea that, that, that was the story of my my co- where I went to Polytechnic in Birmingham. Yeah, the, I remember the football. We weren't allowed to watch football in the Union Bar, but they put rugby on, and the rugby fans ripped all the hand dryers off and smashed the toilet up. And you're like, I thought the football fans were even got a problem with. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I, 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 it is a weird kind of thing that, that you'd go, 
if there's if there's massive problems that that night in Wales after the rugby national, it's all kind of dismissed as high jinks and whatnot. But if it was football, there's no doubt that there would be heavy, you know, jail sentences and, and all kinds of dawn raids for the, for similar things. And I think a lot of football fans felt that there was kind of one rule for one and another for the others. Now let's, now let's let's end this podcast on a positive because I feel yeah, like I'm okay. dragging I'm dragging us into 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 all sorts of cultural uh, wars. Here. <laughs> um, but um, so so from your point of view, what would it, I mean? Your 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 documentary encapsulates an, a, 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 a sort of tragic tale that that emerges into a fantastic tale of of expectations being surpassed and then buried and then something new coming for Welsh football. So. Out of that experience, as a football fan, maybe more than a documentarian, what's your abiding memory of the Euros 2016? I, th- I think just the whole the way that everybody kind of like um, helped, helped one another. Sounds really cheesy, this, but you know, like just stuff like when we beat for just for Agustic Belgium, and we wanted to get to Lyon. Hmm. People were just like swapping how where we'd stay and how you get down there and. You know, sort of my mate, Dougie, he said, oh, I've got to go back to work. I've taken so much time off. And I was like, oh, I'm sure we can get you out of this. And there was a Radio 1 presenter at uh, our hotel. I went, oh, look, can you do a thing around Dougie way? Maybe we can ask his boss live on air, <laughs> put him a bit of prayer. And they, and they did, you know. There was those great moments where I just felt that everybody knew something special was happening by about, certainly after the first game, but definitely after the Russia game where we went through in the groups. Mm. And I felt that there was a real feeling amongst everybody that, you know, there's some, something special was happening, so let's enjoy it. Re- regardless of where we end up now, let's just have the best time and the best party. And of course, France is a great country for the major tournament. I've been there for rugby tournaments, football tournaments. It is a, it's perfect because it's got a great infrastructure, amazing cities, Amazing stadiums, great food, great drink. I mean, it couldn't have been in a better place. That mm. was the big thing as well. We were really lucky that it happened somewhere like France. I mean, it could have been Russia, couldn't it? Or it could have been the next ones where they, I think they're having it in every bloody city in Europe. Yeah, so we were yeah, lucky. Yeah. We were lucky geographically as well that we were just in a position where you know we'd win a game and it was like the wacky races. You know, where are we today? We're in Bordeaux. Where have we got to get to? Toulouse. You know, every goes this way. You know, and it was like. Everybody was helping one another travel to different parts of France. So that's my favourite memory is, is just the camaraderie amongst everybody just getting around the place. I like that. I like that line, something special was happening, because I think I think that's the thing that, that maybe as England fans that, that we've lost. I mean, I guess 1990, 96 are the exceptions. Mm. And, they, and they are examples of where expectations were low. Yeah. Because you're shitting yourself that it all go wrong and then good starts coming out of it. But... Every other time, it's been a case of um, we expect nothing, nothing happens, therefore we're miserable, nothing's happened. Whereas, I guess, given the way you talked about your friend's view, can we get a goal? Can we win a game? My yeah. God, we've beat Belgium. You know, yeah. they, 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 there's a magic to how, how football can... Because can, it's out of your control, isn't it, as a fan? You've got no, you've got no hand on the tiller. You've only, got no. your gut, you've only got your gut, haven't you, that says... This is going to be a good day or a bad day, and and you and, yeah. you, and, you, and you prove wrong more than right, aren't you? So to be in that, yeah, yeah, it was it was funny. I got, I got a great mate in Nottingham, Gary Clark, who um, was a lovely lad, and he was in Italy, and he, and, he, and a very similar thing happened um, where he said that you know England obviously just he said we bumbled through the group stages. Oh, should we stay? Oh, go on then. And he said you know obviously we did that like a ding dong against Cameroon, and then he said oh come on we'll stay for Belgium, and he said suddenly we were in the semi final. Mm. And I always remember, remember saying to me when we when it looked like we were, there was a night we were. Playing Russia, and I was out there, and um, he texted me, just went, "Stay, 
whatever you do now, stay. Because you know, it was the best decision I ever made was to, 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 I think he even, might have even lost his job at the time or mm. was reprimanded where he was working. But he said, I just decided to stay. And he said, I think he can remember his boss at the time, you know, when he came back. We know where you've been. You know, we know you've been in Italy for the last month. Mm. You know, but he said, I was, he said, now that I'm in my 40s, 50s, I'm so glad that I did it. And I think, and, and I'm, I'm in my 40s now. I'm so glad that I did that now. I'm so glad that I went well, that next morning. I've got to get back, really, and all that. I was like, nah, I'm going to stay. Do you know what? I'm going to stay. And I, 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 we've got the internet now, so we're actually, and I and Vicky was brilliant, my partner. And I was like texting home, and I was going, listen, I know this sounds ridiculous, but if you can find somewhere, you know, in Paris, you know, which is going to be really tough. Or, and she was brilliant. She'd come back and go, I've got this little hotel for you. You're in. So it was great, you know, and, and oh, I've got to find somewhere in Lille now. I've got to find somewhere. You know. It was all that going on, and um, I'm so glad that I did it. And I think that's what the film is about. It's about people. I think this lad said in the film, Mark Evans, The Welsh River, he said, I felt that the story of the tournament was the Welsh fans, people who went out there for three days and ended up up there for four weeks. You know, Dean Saunders' car at Birmingham Airport, that became a story, didn't it, where I think mm. it cost him like 300 quid. Rodri Gilbert going out there and to say to people, can you put my bins out because I'm still in <laughs> France? <laughs> it was all that kind of going on. So I just thought, you know, it was it was a lovely moment in Welsh history um, and one that will probably, you know, may never be repeated again. Um, so I thought well, all I could do, like you said, because it was so instant, is just to almost take a snapshot. I, I, what I'd like to happen is in 20, 30 years when some other lad or, or young girl is making another documentary about what maybe happened and what effect it had in Wales, my thing will be of its time. You know, it'll have lots of modern music, it'll have lots of this thing. And they can say, well, look, you know, like when I look back at a 70s documentary and I really like them for what they are, mm. I hope somebody will look back and go, well, listen, this is this is the snapshot just six months later. There's the players all talking about it, fresh. You know, they haven't got that 20, 30 years of, 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 of reflecting. They're right in the moment. There's the footage, there's the fans. And hopefully somebody can say, well, you know, I, I get a feeling of what it must have been like, really exciting. Well, let's remind people, where, where can they get Don't Take Me How can they see Don't Take Me Home? It's on BT Sports quite regularly. It's, mm -hmm. um, it's obviously on DVD, uh, available from all uh, good, what do you call it, what do you say, all good retailers, is it? Or supermarkets, that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah. Um, so if you, if, you, if, if you Google Don't Take Me Home film, it'll tell you pretty much where you can get it from, however you want it. Brilliant. Now, one last thing then. Can you tell us yeah. about anything you're working on at the moment? Oh, do you know what? I'd love to be able to tell you as well. I'm completing the football trilogy. Yeah. Um, it's another football film. I'm working with the boys who did um, Senna and Amy. Wow. And um, and I think it'll have specific... I'll tell you when we when we knock this off, but I think it'll have specific interest to somebody like yourself Brilliant. and your football support. I'll let right. you know. Okay, so well, I'm... I'm, that's, that's, that's my, I'm a lot, hopefully my last of my three football films, and I'll see you. I'll have a, have a think after that. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, thank you very much for giving us your time on the Britflix podcast. You're very welcome. It's always a pleasure to come on. Britflix.com podcast is provided totally free without any outside advertising. So if you enjoyed it, please make sure to subscribe at iTunes and write me a review. Thank you. Hey, y'all. Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? 
And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.